Rides on a milky white horse, no man works like him. The river of Jordan he did cross, no man works like him. He is king of kings, he is lord of lords. Lord Jesus Christ, the first and last, no man works like him. And he comes for me, no man works like him. He comes to set his people free, no man works like him. He is King of kings, he is Lord of lords. Lord Jesus Christ, the first and last, no man works like him. Not every preacher that gets to request a song to be part of his sermon, uh, and I requested that from Seth. Good job, and, and Amanda. Uh, can you do that in any church in Allegheny County? Maybe not, but I did it here at Houghton. I thought of that song right on King Jesus when I uh, found out that I would preach on this Sunday, and um, it's a favorite spiritual of mine. Spirituals written, of course, out of oppression and and sadness, and yet when they look at King Jesus, they find hope. But of course, this song is singing about the King Jesus found in Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His name is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Earlier in the book of Revelation, John records, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. I think you can hear the hallelujah chorus of the Handel's Messiah there in the book of Revelation. But this is a far cry from the humble Jesus riding in peace toward Jerusalem in the scriptures that we focus on today. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, But we're going to particularly look at Luke and then a little bit in Matthew. Is this the same king? What kind of king is Jesus on Palm Sunday riding on a donkey? And what does this intriguing drama have to do with us today and and our world? A lot. Now, I realize this is a very familiar passage. You've already heard it. 
You've seen the kids wave their palm branches. It's something we celebrate every year, thinking very much of the church in Egypt, which celebrated it today in such great trauma and turmoil. So I actually have to ask you to work a little bit harder to pay attention today because it is so familiar. I want us to focus on Jesus, his thoughts, his heart, and to renew our faith and our love for him. So here's the point. Jesus, the humble, life-giving king, enters Jerusalem on God's mission at the start of this Holy Week, Passover week. He deserves our allegiance, our worship, and our service. Let me just start with a couple of preliminary points a bit, uh, not part of the text. I'd like to think that with God, the writer and originator, and Jesus, the director and actor, Palm Sunday is more than just an entertaining day for parade lovers, just stuck in before things get really serious with... uh, Uh, the Last Supper and Gethsemane and and Good Friday and then, of course, victorious Easter. I want us to see that the Old Testament prophets foretold and Jesus choreographed this day very precisely. Second, the four Gospels record that for months Jesus has been moving towards Jerusalem, pointing towards this day and this week as he traveled towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem now filling with pilgrims preparing for the Passover celebration. Some say ten, ten times, six times, ten times the population normally in that city. Josephus got a little exaggerated. He thought there were two million people in the city that day, but if you look at it, it seems like that was a little exaggerated. Or on Passover Sunday, uh, weeks. Um, but Jesus had warned his baffled disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die a cruel death. And the people were already, of course, they had noticed already plotting to get rid of him somehow. Thirdly, strangely, even during this whole last year of his ministry while he was teaching and doing miracles, he deliberately tried to keep his messiahship secret, squelch it a little bit, even said, don't tell anybody until today when he openly declares that he's the messiah. He talked plenty about the kingdom of God, but who was the king? Now, the city of Jerusalem was abuzz, it says in the Gospels, asking the questions, will Jesus come? Will the master come? And so they're kind of waiting to see what was happening. There's an air of anticipation. A last little preliminary thing. You could talk a lot about Jewish history and Josephus and some of the descriptions, but several scholars and sources claim that the Romans in Palestine fearful of Jewish uprisings during this time when the city is packed with loyal, patriotic Jews, put on an annual display of imperial power prior to the Passover at the beginning of that week, parading into Jerusalem from a military fortress called Caesarea Maritima, 75 miles west towards the sea, at the sea. And they came with horses, chariots, soldiers, and a whole regal array. Some even say Herod Antipas, or in one case, Pontius Pilate, led the parade on a horse. Just kind of stick that in your mind as we go through the passage. So we're going to go through the Gospel of Luke and some of Matthew with four scenes, kind of like a drama, like a play, specifically recorded here. Our first, a donkey, a password, 
and a prophecy. Jesus was, has walked many times all his life, walked, and walked from Galilee this time down the Jordan Valley to, towards Jerusalem, through Jericho in the Gospels, blind Bartimaeus, and so on, and up to Bethany. And he only had a couple miles to go into Jerusalem. But this time, he texted ahead of time and, and, and ordered a rental taxi to transport him from Bethany. Now, Bethany was where he had a bed and breakfast with Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. He had done the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And so uh, it even says in Matthew that he went back to Bethany that night, and during that Passover week, likely he was sleeping in, in, Beth- in Bethany. And then he had the, the password for the uh, rental group. The Lord needs it. That's all he had to say. And they gave him the donkey. Why this surprising donkey, such a kind of maybe insignificant fact we find, was very important. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, he describes it. They took place, this took place, this donkey and this trip to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes. And I'll give the full quote from, uh, well, we had it in our scripture reading. The early services didn't read it, so let me just repeat it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Good Hebrew uh, use of uh, personification of the city. See, your king comes to you. A king. Righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Oh, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. And he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. This four-legged taxi ride was not a last-minute idea because he was tired out at all. Something very important and long-planned was happening. We know kings ride on horses, and they did some in the Old Testament, but there also were times in the Old Testament, David and others, who rode in in peace on donkey. It was an, uh, an animal of peace. Now, Pastor West sometimes sings in his sermons, and you like it. Can I read you a poem in my sermon today? I like this donkey. It's by G.K. Chesterton, and some of you know it. Somebody in the first service came, oh, I just read that this week, and I thought I was the only one who knew this poem. G.K. Chesterton. It's from the donkey's point of view and his poor, lowly place in life. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon a thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, that surely was when I was born. Poor donkey. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four, of all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will Go ahead, starge, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. So a little credit to the donkey today. (laughs) I like that poem of Chesterton. But the point of it is, Jesus knew this was an important day. The plot is clear. 
Jesus deliberately announced his coming role as Israel's long-anticipated Messiah, King David's successor, the Prince of Peace. Peace for Israel, but peace for the nations. His mission this week was to give his life a ransom to many, for many, for the nations, for us to find our peace with God. That was scene one. Scene two, we can move on to the next. The crowd, the shouts, and the stones. The stones. His followers did not miss the point and led him along with a carpet of clothes and palm branches, waving shouts of praise from the Psalms we heard in our call to worship today, Psalm 118. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So who were these people shouting and praising the Lord? I think many of them were pilgrims on their way for the Passover, great Passover feast. Maybe traveled with him down the dusty roads, the Jordan Valley, all the way from Galilee. Of course, some were from Jericho and some were from Bethany. The crowd kept getting larger. And in Bethany, of course, they were people who had even witnessed the miracles, the miracle of Lazarus. So Jesus accepts their praise and doesn't say much. He's just going along with the celebration until the infiltrating Pharisees told Jesus to silence the crowd. And what does he say? Maybe they were worried about the extra guard around the temple, the Roman guards and all the extra uh, people looking for danger. And Jesus replies, I tell you that if these people keep quiet, the stones will cry out and shout. Well, that'll be a new one for your science class, won't it, to talk about shouting stones, geology. Is he just going over the top, hyperbole again? I'd like to offer another Old Testament passage that might give us a clue. Strangely, from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. In the 530s B.C., Daniel was in Babylon, and he's praying for his city of Jerusalem, for hope and restoration. And God sends the angel Gabriel to answer his prayer. Now, it gets a... I won't say dicey, but it's, it's complicated. And it's, it's uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff you can preach from Daniel. And I'm not a, a guy in a slick plaid suit who's got a pointer and a chart I'll pull down and we're going to go into this. But just listen to these words a minute because I think they are fascinating. 77s, verse 24, Daniel 9, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. And now your mind is spinning, and I hope we aren't going to go into all this. Well... We won't rehash all the possibilities of interpretation. It's complex prophecy. But several esteemed biblical scholars have pointed out uh, that there's a possibility here that Gabriel is referring to Artaxerxes' undisputed decree in 445 B.C., mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 2, to rebuild the city walls. I say undisputed because... Historians are very clear when Artaxerxes lived and what date and what time, the month of Nisan and so on. Not the car, the month of Nisan. And um, that's 445 B.C. 
Well, who are these scholars? Well, I want to give them credit. One is Dr. Alva McLean, founder and president of Grace Biblical Seminary, Grace Seminary, Theological Seminary in, in uh, Winola Lake, and our few people here at Houghton connected to that. And then our own Houghton alum, very famous alum, Dr. Bruce Waltke, talks about this, uh, a distinguished Old Testament scholar. So there are people, even a professor of mine at Trinity, who, who look at this uh, numerical kind of prophecy and, and start counting the days from 445 B.C., Keeping it simple, they understood the weeks or the sevens to be a grouping of seven years. And in Daniel, you take 62 plus 7, it says, that's not 69, right? 69 times seven years is 483 years. Now you have to get into leap years and how many days in a year and how it gets complicated. But there is a possibility that you take that decree and you count the days and it comes to exactly the day, Palm Sunday, 32 A.D., when Jesus entered Jerusalem. That may not turn you on, but it is possibly a reason why Jesus would say, all right, so quiet the people. If they are quiet, the stones are going to shout out. This is a day on God's calendar. This is the time when he announces his Messiah, coming to Jerusalem. God has a mission. God has a plan. And here's the cue. Roll the tape. Roll the film. Here comes Jesus. Nothing could stop him. This is a big thing. God's world today, he has a mission. He has a plan of redemption. He has hope for this world. I think sometimes we lose hope. News like this morning. News like last week, millions of refugees flooding out of countries, people in South Sudan starving to death. I mean, you sometimes just wonder if God is asleep. And I think this points to me that God is not asleep. God has a plan. A plan for Jerusalem and Israel, yes. But we know God has even larger kingdom plans for our world. He commissions us to partner in that mission, telling the good news of Christ. And we can cut, trust God to be faithful with us. That's why my view of mission, my theology of mission is, it's God's mission. And we partner with him in his mission. And that gives us great confidence as we look at our world today. The stones. Well, then number three, another quick little segment of this story. There's a look and there's pause and there are tears. Luke only brings this little exclusive scoop. Jesus takes a bend in the road and suddenly there is, there's a twist in the plot because he looks over and sees Jerusalem before him. Joy and happiness and celebration all around him, but tears on the face of Jesus. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. And he goes on with those tragic and graphic descriptions. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And Jesus later in the week goes back to the temple and teaches. And one of the parables he teaches in the next chapter, Luke chapter 20, is the parable of the tenants. Very much this idea of I came and you rejected me. 
I'm also reminded of John the Gospel's poignant words. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, born of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I think Jesus looks out on our world today, as described in Matthew, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Who's going to weep with them? Who's going to pray for them? Who's going to share the good news of peace with them? He sees our wars, and he sees the troubled world, and he sees ahead to the long-term prospects unless people have him. So now the message of this day is even clearer. Jesus comes, he cares, he loves, he weeps, he invites, he warns. Do we have this same longing? Are we looking for kingdom breakthroughs in our world, for refugees, for the inner cities, for the streets and hilly roads in Allegheny County with potholes? Are we desperate for the next generation of children, for our youth, for young adults at Houghton College and other universities, to meet the Prince of Peace, to receive abundant life? Do we weep? Do we pray? Do we care? Do we work? I just heard this week from uh, Dr. Don Little. He came from a conference in Portland, Oregon, and some workers from Europe working with refugees told the story in Sweden. I'll tell a different one this service. Three Muslim women came to a rather cold state church, a Lutheran church. Oh, I shouldn't have said Lutheran, but it was a, you know, it's just kind of a cold church that hadn't really done much with sharing the gospel. And they came and said, can you tell us the gospel? Oh, they had to scramble. What, is, what do you mean? Can you tell us about Jesus? And they pulled together some Bible studies and the three women began to study and And long story short, they gave their hearts to the Lord. And then they wanted to tell others. And they wanted to tell others properly. So the church sent them to some training sessions. And they believed in ordaining women. So they stamped some authority on them and said, go ahead, preach. Believe it or not, those women are traveling around Sweden today, planting Muslim background believer churches at a rapid pace. I mean, there's some good news. People are responding to Jesus in our crazy world today. Let's not forget that picture. And there are more pictures like it. Finally, another little glimpse. The last act, and I've included the cleansing of the temple. I know it happens on Monday. Luke just slips right into the story and doesn't say it's Monday. Matthew tells us that Jesus continued on from the triumphal entry down to the city. And the children still praised and and shouted hosannas, and the Pharisees and the leaders said, keep those children quiet. And he said, no, I can't. Out of the mouths of babes will come the praises. And, and so he even heals people in the temple there. And, uh, and then it says he walked around and he observed. And there he was in the outer courts of the temple, seeing all the commerce. But he didn't do anything about it on Sunday. But he went back to Bethany that night. And I think this proves that he planned to do what he what he did on Monday. Uh, where am I? So Sunday, or Monday, he comes back to the temple, and he goes about his cleansing of the temple and driving the uh, the marketers out of 
the court of the Gentiles, where they were drowning out proper worship with their business. And he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. A lot of theories of why he cleansed the temple, but the one that somebody like me who studied missions feels that he cleansed the temple because he was upset that the Gentiles were prohibited from worshiping in their court because of all the commerce going on. So now Jesus has completed kind of his introductory announcement that the Messiah has come, the anointed one has come to his temple, has come to his city. The introduction to the Holy Week that we're going through now. He comes to declare salvation to the city, to the nation, to the people of God, and to the whole room, to, to the whole world. Make room for him. So what kind of king is this? He's the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the king of peace, the prince of peace for the whole world. Good story and wonderful story, but what does it mean to us? Let's face it. This was Jesus' day. This was Jesus' week. This was his moment. Triumphant, yes, today, but we know that he came with courage and determination to obey and fulfill his mission that would take him all the way to the cross. But ultimately, it was a week of triumph and victory. It's all about him. But it's also about our response to him just as it was about the reception that the people did or didn't give to him in Jerusalem. Jesus came anticipating a royal throne, but the throne was the hearts of people. Jesus was making his final appeal. Will you not even now yet accept me as your Lord and King and enthrone me in your hearts? What courage, what love, what submission... We mustn't miss the invitation. We must enthrone him in our hearts and lift him up for others to see in our world today. We must join the chorus of the faithful, boldly declaring him as our Savior. Our hope isn't a temporary, in a temporary political Savior, someone to turn over the tide of all that's going on in the world in that kind of way, but in the coming King of the universe. God's kingdom, God's mission, must become our mission. And our prayer must become, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right on, King Jesus. We're with you. We're with you. Amen. Lord, we thank you. With a deep love and deep sacrifice and your steps of faith and your obedience to the Father's plan. Thank you for Scripture, for these vivid stories that show us what your plan is. Help us to receive Christ in our hearts. Help us to take Christ to the world, the hurting world, following his example, his ways, his compassion, his love, his peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.